Alyssa, mm-hmm. every year music critics like to try and predict what the song of the summer is going to be. Yep. So some of the ones I can list off the top of my head would be Len's Steal My Sunshine from 1999. Classic. Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe from 2012. I love it. And then last year there was Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. Mm, can't get it out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, is there going to be a song of the pandemic? Big question. I think so. I mean, there's tons of songs about the pandemic, and they're not subtle. Okay. Um, let's see. Ben Gibbard released a track called Life in Quarantine. Mm, that's not subtle at all. Right. Uh, <laughs> a Cardi B PSA was sampled and made into a track called Coronavirus. Ah, uh, Yeah, I remember that one, too. Yeah. And Shiro to the World, Dolly Parton, released When Life is Good Again. Love her. Okay, let me rephrase my question then. Okay. What was your pandemic anthem? So early on, I listened to R.E.M.'s It's the End of the World as We Know It over and over again. Not subtle. Yeah. But I ended up settling on this great track from Australia's Hilltop Hoods, and it's called Mm -hmm. I'm Good. Mm -hmm. And it really sums up the early days of the pandemic perfectly. Yeah, you sent that to me, and I listened to it a few times as well. Um, For me, Megan Thee Stallion's Savage was definitely a pandemic anthem. Okay. Yeah, basically anything that would make me dance because, you know, I had a lot of pent-up energy from being at home so much. I just needed to release it however I could. I think a lot of people needed a release. And luckily, Japan's Song of the Summer offered the chance to do just that. I'm Japan Times culture editor Alyssa Smith. And I'm Features Editor, Sean McKenna. And this is Recultured, a four-part look at the effects of COVID-19 on Japanese pop culture. In this episode, Japan is oh so tired of isolation and slowly peeks out of the front door again. So post that TikTok you've been working on, remember to mask up, and join us as we relive some of the country's more significant pop culture moments of the year. Adapt. So, Sean. Yes, Alyssa. Towards the end of May, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe ended the state of emergency for Japan and everything opened up a little bit more. Yeah, it was a bit of a relief. Mm -hmm. And going off the music that was popular during that period, this opening up couldn't have come at a better time. The isolation hits, they were kind of dark. Well, if you look at the trajectory of pop music in Japan over the past decade, you can see a slow build towards where we ended up in the first half of 2020. Mm. When I started out at the Japan Times, the two big trends in Japanese music were perfectly put-together K-pop groups Mm -hmm. and purposefully imperfect domestic acts like AKB48. And pretty much all of this was super upbeat, right? Both in terms of sound and lyrics. Super upbeat, super saccharine, and for the first half of the decade, this is what the majority of pop in Japan sounded like. More recently, that started to shift, though, as culture writer Patrick St. Michel tells us. Young people in Japan tend to have a more dour outlook on the future, um, way more so than their parents might have ever had. It's harder to get stable work. Money is tighter. More people live in big cities, you know, in these cramped apartments. And everyone just seems more on edge, especially when you start looking around social media. Now, mix in big picture stuff like global warming And you can imagine how younger folks aren't, you know, all that excited about what's to come tomorrow. J-pop started to reflect this sort of new reality around 2016, 2017, when new younger artists started breaking through and gaining popularity in the market. And they did so by offering a more realistic view 
on the world of today. And that view has just connected with a whole new set of listeners. So while this trend in Japanese music was already well underway, at the start of the pandemic, you can understand why some people may have gravitated toward it. And one of the first Japanese songs that I remember hearing as we entered the state of emergency was a track by Yoasobi called Racing Into the Night. Yeah, I know that one. A deceptively beat song about throwing yourself off a building. Yeah, they're keeping it real. On that <laughs> one. Yeah, this was part of a new online movement that was being called Yakose on social media. Which translates to night liking or something like that in English. Yeah, something like that. All of their names kind of like reference the night in some way, and the mood of the songs is, well, less than sunny. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about that track, Racing Into the Night, is that even though it's got this super dark topic matter, the music wouldn't really feel out of place on mainstream radio. It's at like 130 BPM, it's got jangly guitars, and this high-octane piano going all throughout it. The vocals also sound uplifting, but what singer Rira Ikuta is singing about is mental health problems, and eventually a couple suicide. Here's Patrick again. That song is actually inspired by a short story uh, called Temptation of Thanatos, which was written by the author Mayo Hoshino and shared online in the summer of 2019. Yoasobi coupled it with an animated video that helped it stand out on YouTube. And, you know, given the subject matter, it's pretty jarring to realize how many influencers have just, like, danced to it on TikTok or watching, like, other YouTubers cover it themselves in a really, like, upbeat manner on their own channels. So you have a song that, on the surface, sounds quite happy, but peel back a few layers and things are clearly not right. But isn't that just how all of us have been feeling? I mean, people ask me on Zoom calls if I'm okay— and I get messages from friends back home, you know, cousins, all asking if I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I say I am because I don't have COVID, but there's still something that's like not quite right. Yeah, therapists are going to have their work cut out for them. Seriously, to anyone listening, don't feel like you can't reach out to someone to talk. You're not alone. Yes, please reach out. So after the state of emergency was lifted around the end of May, it seemed like most people were okay to go out while still keeping in mind the government's new guidelines. I think people wanted to feel happy and connected again after quite a depressing and lonely spring, especially those who hadn't found any solace in Animal Crossing. Mm -hmm. It was the start of summer and people were looking to do things again. Yeah, and I think that desire to let loose and be happy, that's what helped give us our song of the summer. It's literally in the title, Make You Happy. Make You Happy, a super hit by a new group called Nijiyu. It's currently got almost 200 million views on YouTube, but I think it probably would have been a hit with or without the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's a great track. We'd hope to play a bit of it for you on this episode. But even though the Japanese music industry has become more relaxed about getting stuff on the internet over the past few years, getting permission to play 15 seconds of a song ended up being a line in the sand for the bigwigs at Sony Japan. <laughs> so instead, here's Deep Dive host Oscar Boyd reading an English translation of the chorus. Okay, let's see how this goes. Oh, I just want to make you happy. Ah, I want you to smile. Your forgotten smile, it's okay, we'll bring it back. When I see that smile, I'm truly happy. <laughs> that was beautiful, Oscar. Good job. If you want to actually listen to the track, we'll put in a link to the group's official YouTube channel in the show notes. We'll do the same with the other tracks we mentioned here as well. Sean, you know the track, right? Of course. Okay, so for the people who haven't heard it, 
What's the vibe? I feel like you're setting me up for failure here. <laughs> um, but at the risk of sparking the outrage of a lot of fans, mm-hmm. uh, I'll say that Make You Happy is a bit like Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. I mean, in spirit. Okay. So like, Swift is built for football stadiums, but Niji U is built for vertical video. Mm-hmm. The two songs are their own thing, but they, they kind of share that certain vibe. Okay. So going after the Taylor Swift fans and the Niji U fans in one go. It's very bold, Sean. Yeah, we'll send all your complaints to at MLB Melodies. <laughs> anyway, Alyssa, give us a little bit of the backstory to this song. Okay, so it came out of something called Niji Project, a talent competition that aired on Hulu Japan starting from the end of January. The idea actually came from a K-pop company called JYP, who wanted to create an all-Japanese group as part of its K-pop 3.0 strategy. So K-pop 3.0, is that like the new 5G? Yeah, someone's paranoid uncle is already blaming it for COVID-20, I'm sure. (laughs) In reality, it's a strategy centered around globalization by localization. For a long time, K-pop groups only featured Korean performers. Okay. Then, with groups like Twice, they started featuring a handful of Japanese members alongside Korean ones. And that proved even more popular in Japan. Okay. So the next step, what if the whole group was made up of Japanese members? Hence the Niji Project? Hence the Niji Project. Hmm. The first step in this competition was auditioning hundreds of women across the country to see who could end up in the final group and filming it all for TV. The show actually didn't click with viewers when it started in January. It wasn't until Fuji TV started running recaps of the program on their daily morning show later in the spring that it became a hit. Hannah Lee, a contributor for Japanese entertainment site Adama Japan, followed the group since the beginning. The first one... People kind of knew it was happening, but only really, really hardcore JYP people. Like, whereas the second one, literally the tail end of it comes as, like, everyone's just at home, bored, they're looking for something new. And they're like, oh, let me just watch this TV show with girls in it. Sounds great. (laughs) So it gained steam thanks to a captive audience, reaching not only younger viewers who gravitate towards pop, but also older morning show viewers. Nijiu is big on mom Twitter. Mom Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then after the competition finished and the members were selected, the group offered up Make You Happy as its pre-debut single. Okay, tell us what pre-debut single means. Well, Make You Happy is the first song Nijiu released, but it isn't a quote-unquote debut single. The debut is when a pop group actually presents itself to the world. Like an old-fashioned Southern debutante ball? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Nijiu's <laughs> um, official debut actually came just a few weeks ago on December 2nd with Step in a Step. So if that was the coming out party with all the PR push a proper debut entails, then Make You Happy was like the mother of a debutante bragging about what a hit the party is going to be. I think this metaphor is getting away from us. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just remember that Nijiu offered its first song to the world on June 30th, and that was Make You Happy. That's all you need to know. Okay. Almost immediately, it went viral, partly due to the group's jump rope dance, which became huge on TikTok, but also because it was this huge upbeat number that cut through the fog of 2020. It just provided a sense of relief. Here's Hannah again. I would definitely say it's very close to just like a pent-up energy. It's how you got the Roaring Twenties right after the Spanish flu. When you tell people, hey, like everyone's dying, stay at home, and they feel super depressed, they're going to listen to USOV. And then they'll be like, oh, hey, it's better than we thought. So 
you get this huge influx of like, we want to be happy. So that's why Dynamite picked up. That's why you have Make You Happy, etc., etc. I think the idea of pent-up energy is important because that was the motivation for people to get out and try to make things as normal as possible. But as the government tried to remind us, this was a new kind of normal. More after the break. Hey, Lisa, you're something of a gourmand, aren't you? Mm-hmm. What do you do when you're in the mood for some really good food? I go to one of Tokyo's top restaurants. Hmm, that's kind of hard to do right now. What if you don't want to leave the comfort of your own home? Oh, well, then I don't know. Well, then check out Foodie, Tokyo's first gourmet restaurant delivery service. Oh? Foodie delivers from a diverse selection of Tokyo's finest restaurants, most of which have never been available for delivery before. Wow, really? What can I get on Foodie? You can get all sorts, and the list is growing. Some of the favorites include restaurants like Nobu Tokyo and the Oak Door Steakhouse. But it's not just what you can get, it's also where you can get it. Foodie delivers to your home, hotel, office, business party, and even picnics in the park. Picnics in the park? Picnics in the park. I know you like picnics in the park. I do. So this festive season, go to www.food-e.jp for the best fine dining delivery options in Tokyo. Premium dining. Now at your fingertips and available exclusively at www.food-e.jp. The link is in the episode notes. While the charts were stacked with upbeat bops over the summer, the government was trying to balance public safety and economic stability. We'd been in a state of emergency, but with the number of COVID cases dropping down to more manageable levels, it was phased out throughout May. And in theory, at least, it was okay to head back out into the world. Yeah, but with caveats. This is when Prime Minister Shinzo Abe first dropped the idea of the aratana nichijou, the new normal. The idea was to try to open up again while keeping cases as low as possible going forward. Ideally, to prevent the country from ever having to go back into a state of emergency. I don't know about you, but I was really hesitant to go out at first, especially to any kind of indoor space. Yeah, same. But after a few weeks, I headed out to meet some friends one night. One of us suggested an izakaya, and I had a look at it online and realized there were no windows, meaning no ventilation. Uh oh. So we went to a patio instead. But this was me adapting. Life, it finds a way. <laughs> it does. <laughs> My friends and I would meet up in the city's parks since outdoor places were considered safer to meet people. Right. Despite the new focus on life outdoors, though, a lot of the summer events that Japan is known for were canceled. This included major outdoor music festivals like Fuji Rock and Summer Sonic. Yeah, with travel restrictions in place at the borders, a lot of the bands that were heading to those festivals couldn't actually get into play.、Mm -hmm. And there was also the problem of bringing large numbers of people together in one space, even if it was outdoors. Like the Olympics, those big festivals have chosen to postpone rather than cancel. And they've pushed back their lineups to 2021. But live music did start to return over the summer. Clubs and live spots, which had been closed for the first half of 2020, began to reopen from mid June, though with limited capacity and other restrictions. Yeah, see, these small live houses and clubs form the backbone of the music industry in Japan, and there are hundreds in Tokyo alone. 
a lot of musicians get their starts at these places, yep. so it was a massive relief for them when they could reopen. Seime Kawaii, co-founder of Tokyo label Trekkie Tracks and a fixture in the city's DJ scene, tells us what it was like for him putting on his first show after the state of emergency. Well, the first show was uh, there's a lot of people because that was after the uh, the Kinkyu Jitai Sengen, state of emergency of the Japanese government. So people thought like, oh, we can go to the club now. And then a lot of people came to our show. <laughs> but but maybe around like 100 or something. Yeah. Well, like, uh, we talk with uh, club people, uh, like club owner, owner and um, uh, the manager. And, you know, like uh, how, how, can, how we can set the rules to enjoy the club, checking their temperature, yeah. Or, and also, um, you know, like uh, if you don't have masks, you cannot come in. But even though clubs and live houses were open, that didn't mean everyone was going to automatically feel comfortable going out. Japan Times culture writer James Hadfield tells us about his first experience out at a club. I went to a venue, which I'm not going to name, but it's like it's a a more underground venue, which I like a lot. And I went to a gig that they were doing there after they started actually having gigs with audiences. And a lot of people weren't wearing masks. A lot of people were smoking. It was kind of a bit more crowded than I would have liked. And just generally, it didn't feel like something that was worth subjecting myself to. It's like much as I really enjoy watching live music, um, I don't enjoy it that much. And also, um, you know, not, not enough to put myself into a situation which is potentially hazardous. Around the same time, movie theaters opened up again, another sign that implied life could resume. Of course, this was the new normal, so the cinema-going experience wasn't anything like you remembered it. Theaters operated at reduced capacity, masks were mandatory, and snacks weren't allowed. Here's James again. I love going to the cinema. I want cinemas to still be here in the future. So I felt it was kind of important as well to support them. As long as you didn't have anybody who was kind of like coughing and spluttering all the way through the screening, then actually it didn't feel dangerous and From what I understand about how COVID is transmitted, I don't think it is dangerous or, you know, um, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, obviously, anything when you're getting potentially over 100 people in the same room, it's like that's more dangerous than staying at home. I think that's self-evident. But if people are keeping masks on and they're not eating, they're not talking, then I think it's comparatively low risk. But one of the problems theatres were facing was a lack of new films to actually show. Studios around the world had postponed their summer blockbuster releases, so instead cinemas turned to old films, including a string of Studio Ghibli classics aimed at kids on summer break. Sean, I found the summer to be one long dilemma. Hmm. COVID was still around, but things were opening up, and the government was pretty quickly shifting its language from stay, stay, stay to go, go, go. Yeah, like it wasn't long ago we were all supposed to stay cooped up, watching YouTube and binging Netflix. Then suddenly the message became, all right, get back out there. Yep. I found I had a really uneasy relationship with going back out into the world. And I always had like one eye on the COVID-19 ticker as the case numbers fluctuated. Mm -hmm. 
It just feels like we've been in this never-ending dance with the virus. Yeah, I know what you mean. What I found really strange was the suddenness with which the government launched the GoToTravel campaign. God, GoTo. This was the government-subsidized domestic travel campaign, right? Yep. So it launched in late July as a way to help revitalize the country's tourism industry, which had flatlined due to COVID and Japan banning international tourists. To encourage domestic tourism, the government facilitated great deals on transport and lodging. I like to think of myself as a generally responsible person, but these savings, it was like someone forgot to add some zeros on Expedia. Yeah, they were great deals. But you might end up having to go to the emergency room. (laughs) That was the running gag on Twitter, at least. If this was a tough enough situation to decode for regular folks like you and I, imagine how a travel-centric YouTuber would have to deal with it. Here's Chris Broad of the channel Abroad in Japan. But yeah, no, I was desperate to get out and do things. Felt like 2020 had been lost in most respects. Like it's crazy, isn't it? When you think back to February, you know, as, as recent as February, and they're talking about the Olympics. Oh, we're never going to cancel it. Never in a million years. Chris's channel has long offered viewers outside of Japan the chance to virtually visit the country. But even though the country was reopening, deciding when to put new travel content on his channel wasn't easy, with the COVID situation constantly changing. In October, when things felt more settled, he eventually began filming a series called Journey Across Japan. I wanted to make sure it was at a point where Japan had reopened, but it was all right. It, like, I didn't want to do it straight away after it reopened. It was a bit dicey. People on edge, certainly in the countryside, uh, in the region where I live, People are a bit uncomfortable with folks traveling around, especially from cities and whatnot. So I think if I'd done Journey Across Japan Escape to Fuji in June or July, it wouldn't have gone down well with viewers. It might not have gone down with Japanese locals well, these folks traveling from cities and going into the countryside. But at this point now, I've noticed that that's not an issue. People are kind of welcoming to tourists in most respects because, you know, it's been a huge disaster of 30 million overseas tourists were expected this year, and instead of 30 million, they got zero. Apart from debates in his channel's comment section over the need for masks or not, Hint, they are. Mm-hmm, the series was well-received, but it also underlined how differently Japan was handling the pandemic compared to other countries come the summer and early fall. And there's a lot of confusion from my audiences, which are primarily you know North American, European, UK which have had a really bad time with coronavirus. They're kind of like, how can you go out and do these things? Like, how is Japan like that? The question, how is Japan like this, has been in the back of my mind throughout the pandemic and something I spend a lot of my time thinking about during the summer when everything was reopening. And it's something that has weighed on people's minds here as we've tried to adapt to our new normal. There's still this constant uncertainty around whether cases will rise again or whether the worst is behind us. It's made it really hard to plan for anything more than a couple weeks in advance. And I think the uncertainty has meant that even as Japan opened up and restrictions were relaxed, a lot of things still couldn't return to the way things were pre-pandemic. Yeah, we've seen this with a lot of live music, right? Right. To compensate for the lack of arena concerts, live streaming has become like more of a thing. Yeah, we touched a bit on live stream concerts last episode, but these shows started to take on a bigger scale. So it was no longer just artists confined to their bedrooms. Exactly. Major acts like Perfume, Suck on Action, and Bucktick put on well-received online events. Aya Nogami, a freelance international consultant for the Japanese music industry, tells us more. 
I remember like at the beginning, they just canceled and didn't know what to do. But some of the artists started doing like online streaming from probably from their bedroom to begin with um, on just one guitar or something. And then after a while, because even to do like a small show online, you need staffs to go there. And at the beginning, that even wasn't possible. But after the National Emergency was lifted, people just started doing shows without audience, but with like very limited number of staffs. And that's sort of how it started moving, I think. As we approach the fall, a few concert promoters, emboldened by new ideas and low coronavirus numbers, started testing out limited number festivals. They were received well and always seemed to sell out. I'm telling you, people were in the mood for dancing. And that's another reason why Niju, with its easy-to-follow choreography and peppy beats, was the perfect song to liven up this period of the pandemic. How a jump rope led to the biggest hit of the year, after the break. is almost behind us, which means we can officially call Niju's Make You Happy the most viewed Japanese music video of this year. It's approaching 200 million views on YouTube as we speak. That'll make them happy. It sure will. Factor in subscription streams, and this dose of sonic serotonin is a runaway hit, breaking all sorts of records, as music writer Ronald Taylor tells us. I heard the song and I was just like, this basically sounds like a Twice song. The thing that excited me really, though, was looking at streaming numbers. Because it broke the record for the most streams in a single week. I think it did about 9 million. And then so, yeah, it was a huge success. So what made this song the hit? Is it because it offers something bright in such a downer of a year? Well, the mood of the song certainly helps. Owing to its K-pop origins, Make You Happy follows the same up-tempo format of groups like Twice, who are absolutely huge but mood isn't everything. Here are Ronald and Hannah with their theories. Well, one big reason was the choreography, the jump rope dance. Because something that people, a lot of people do now is that they have things in songs, whether it be just like a hook or choreography, which makes it something that can go viral on TikTok and other social media. I personally call it like the Disney model of success, but it's something that we've seen in the past with things like Gangnam Style, the more viral you are, the more covers you're going to have. The more covers you're going to have, the more people are forced to sit there and analyze the song, which makes them like it more. And it's just this virtuous cycle that just goes up and up and up. So I really have to agree with like the choreography being key to the success of the song is not at all a mistake. One platform we haven't really talked about yet in this series is TikTok, which has become a bit of a global sensation. In Japan, TikTok has been a massive hit for about two years now, and the number of people who started using the app went up significantly as the state of emergency got underway. Generally, the content you encounter on TikTok in Japan is lighthearted. Dance covers, lip-syncing videos, jokes. But it's also become a home for music fans and newer artists, whether it's the upbeat sounds of Nijiu or the uneasy rush of Yoasobi, Tokyo-based music journalist Jay Kogami explains. 
typically in the Japanese market is more uh, staggered towards the uh, physical oriented artists has been more dominant figures in the music charts as well as uh, sales wise. But this year it's changed completely. So you can see more artists coming in from the streaming and more artists coming in from TikTok has been very uh, successful in terms of stream consumptions. A lot of newer artists in Japan have really pushed into digital spaces, much more than into traditional avenues for music promotion. Mm. That's not to say the old way is dead. More corporate groups like Niju still do old-school PR. They appear on Japanese terrestrial TV a lot, to the point where people on social media are starting to express some slight burnout from the group. They've even partnered with convenience store Lawson for a special campaign, including the chance to win a limited-edition tote bag. Oh, goodies. Yeah, goodies. So Niju aren't a complete departure from the way music used to function in Japan, but their digital-first approach has helped them rack up millions of YouTube views, break subscription streaming records, and get Japan's Gen Z to do the jump rope dance. Alyssa, can we get a dance for this podcast? If you choreograph it, I'm all over it. Ooh, I don't know if you want that. No? (laughs) (laughs) Something important that contributed to Niju's success is their focus on building an audience outside of Japan, which meant making sure that their videos could be watched online by anyone overseas. Something that's been avoided by a lot of Japanese bands in the past. Ronald tells us more. So one of the things that people have always complained about as far as like why they, what's keeping them from being a fan is accessibility. So unless you were going to go the alternative route and just illegally download everything for free, you had to physically buy the music. But with the advent of streaming, things started trickling in bit by bit by bit. But now you have more and more acts who are just like uploading their entire discography and just going and realizing that the internet is a tool that they can use. And with fans around the world tied to their screens because of COVID, Nijiu and Make You Happy picked up a lot of views, showing the industry the value of connecting with such a broad audience. The focus on building an international fan base is mostly thanks to JYP Entertainment, the K-pop player behind the group. K-pop has excelled over the past decade in spreading out beyond South Korea's borders and scoring legitimate hits. This year, BTS topped the Billboard Hot 100 chart in the U.S. with Dynamite, making them the first Korean group to ever do so, and the first from Asia since Q Sakamoto did it with Sukiyaki in 1963. I know you should never read the comments. Mm-mm. But diving into the space beneath the Make You Happy video on YouTube reveals so many users commenting in different languages. Here's the thing, Sean. You can see something similar playing out with Yoasobi, with people expressing their appreciation for the song in so many different languages. So you said earlier that when you were in charge of culture content for the Japan Times, you saw the heyday of AKB48. They were big in the 2010s, but what was their presence like online? I'd say they tolerated the internet. But the main reason they towered over J-pop in the 2010s was thanks to an emphasis on physical sales. If you wanted to get a ticket to meet the band or a ballot for their annual member election, you had to actually buy a CD. Back in 2017, there was even a fan who was arrested for illegally dumping 585 copies of the same AKB CD after he'd taken out the election tickets and had no other use for them. Mm, Maybe he just didn't have space for all of them in his tiny Japanese apartment? (laughs) That could have been it. But answering your question... AKB48 did share videos on YouTube in Japan and had some pretty intense viral moments. 
but the focus was always on getting fans to actually buy the music you could physically own. Okay, so that's another stark difference between then and now. Niju still sells physical CDs, but they are digital first. Videos go up first on YouTube, and then they do everything they can to go viral online. Fans buying discs is just a happy bonus. Yeah, so the model is really changing, and you can see this change reflected in the lineup of NHK's end-of-year music extravaganza, Kohaku Utagasen. Oh, Kohaku! I, I haven't seen that in years. Don't worry, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> I actually watch it every year. Um, and for those who don't know, Kohaku aims to get the top artists singing the top songs of the year all on one stage. Appearing on it is like a real sign you've made it in Japan. Mm-hmm. But Ronald points out something interesting about this year's 71st edition. I find it interesting that Niziu debuted this year on Kohaku and AKB48 was dropped, finally. Like, what we had is basically, even though they, like, have been declining for a while, now they're gone from, like, the top show of the top music show of the year. And then you have this new group debuting this year, which takes a lot of elements from Korea. And they have, like, one of the biggest hits of the year. They're, it's like a changing of the guard. So no AKB48 and plenty of Nijiyu. Mm-hmm. And that shows the impact of Nijiyu this year. The group provided a soundtrack to a Japan ready to come out of a state of emergency and, for the first time in months, helped it think happier thoughts. And although Make You Happy doesn't really mesh with how 2020 has actually felt, it offers a sense of escapism that all good pop has. You know, in a way, the coronavirus pandemic has ushered in another changing of the guard, with the music industry having to adjust to new ways in which it can operate and survive. Mm -hmm. From physical spaces to online ones. Tower records to TikTok. Mm -hmm. And with that, the music's winding down, and so is this episode of Recultured. Join us tomorrow, when we finally see some light at the end of the tunnel, and we get some hope thanks to Japan's most popular form of soft power. Wasabi? Anime. Ah, of course. I can't wait. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Episode 4 of Recultured Rebuild will be out tomorrow at 7 p.m. Japan time. Thanks to all those who took the time to interview for this episode. Aya Nogami, Chris Broad, Hannah Lee, James Hadfield, Jay Kogami, Seime Kawai, and Ronald Taylor. This episode was written and edited by Patrick St. Michel and Oscar Boyd, with extra help from our intern Tadasu Takahashi. It was produced by Oscar Boyd. Recultured is hosted by me, Sean McKenna. And me, Alyssa I. Smith. Our theme music was by 4L, and this episode was recorded at the Temple University Japan campus in Sanginjaya, Tokyo. Thanks to them for having us. See you tomorrow, and... Potsukare-sama! Potsukare-sama.